We've been doing a series as a church, it's called Jesus More Than You Know. We've actually been doing this series all year. And why we've been doing it is because we recognise that there's no one passage, no one perspective, no one story, no one scripture verse that captures everything that Jesus is about. His word is extensive. The Gospels give us four different emphases, four different portrayals of the life of Jesus. And whilst they overlap in some things, they all come at a portrait of the life of Jesus with a very unique perspective. And what we've been doing as a church is we've just been marinating all year in the perspective of Jesus that the gospel writers shape us in. They all say some things that are similar, but they all say something in a very unique way, which means each gospel writer inspired by the Holy Spirit, having their skills and their gifts and their knowledge and their perspective and their research sharpened and inspired by God's Spirit, came at the life of Jesus with intentional literary artistry to give us a perspective that we wouldn't have if we didn't read these particular words. Well, today we're going to have a look at the Gospel of John and the Gospel of John. Now, you just can't make sense of the Gospel of John without a good whiteboard diagram, can you? And it's pretty incredible. John is Jesus' youngest disciple. Now, you have to think about this, okay? Because in our day and age, we have this thing called young adulthood. And young adulthood is basically like you're between sort of 17 and maybe 25 or 40 or something like that. Depends how long it goes. Um, and, and it's like you're, you're kind of viewed in our society as in between full adult life responsibilities and adolescence, okay? Now, that is an invention only of the last 100 years or so, because before that, by the time you're 12 or 13, you're ready to be an adult. You are an adult. And, you know, 100 years ago, you were working on the job sometimes when you're 12 or 13 years of age, unless you're at university or other type of higher education study. In Jesus' day, it was worse. The average lifespan was only into the 40s. Think about that. I'm 45. I'd be an old man in, in, in the first century world. My daughters, they, they already think I'm an old man. Um, and so Jesus' disciples, they were young adults when he called them to follow him. But not, you know, if we think young adults, we'd think like, oh, were they 18? They seemed young. But realistically, because of what we know about the sociology of the first century, Jesus' disciples were more than likely 12 or 14 when they first began to follow him. Now, John, the disciple that Jesus loved, the one who rested his head on the bosom of Jesus in the Last Supper, the author of the fourth gospel, the one who lived longest of all of the disciples. In fact, John the disciple was the only one to die a death of natural causes. I mean, they tried to kill him. The Roman Empire had a couple of attempts on his life, but he was just pesky like that. He wouldn't die. When he began to follow Jesus, quite possibly he was 10 or 11 years old. Think about that. Just a young fella what we would consider to be just a kid. And he, 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 we have to think about the life of John the Apostle before we can actually understand what it is that he wrote to us in his gospel because his life shaped him to be a witness and an eyewitness of everything that happened in Jesus. When he puts pen to paper in his gospel, he tells us in John chapter 20, verse Oh, let's see, it must be around about verse 31. He said, he said, man, Jesus did so much stuff, but I have written these things so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, maybe your um, scripture will say, that he is the Christ or the Messiah and that by believing in him, you will have life in his name. So John, he's writing his gospel in his latter years. It was one of the later things that he ever wrote. 
He's writing it well into, you know, maybe the 90s AD. So think about that. 60 years after Jesus has ascended to heaven as an old man who has seen Jesus' life, seen his teaching, seen his death, seen his resurrection, seen the growth of the church, seen the expansion through the Roman Empire, been, been oppressed by the Emperor Nero and exiled to the island of Patmos for his faith and then allowed out to continue to preach till he died in his latter years. And after he's had these decades and decades and decades of following Jesus, he puts pen to paper and says, I'm about to die, I'm about to go home, but I want what I know to be passed on to generations. I want what I know about Jesus, what I saw. When he wrote to the early church, he said, that which we have seen, that which we have touched, that which our eyes have seen and our hands have handled, that's the thing that we pass on to you, the word of life. And he had this passion that he didn't want to leave planet Earth without passing on what it was he knew. Now, if you have elderly people in your life, I am blessed to have quite a number of elderly people in my life. I am an elderly people. Um, they never rush when they tell you a story. It's like one of the cool things about being old, if I could use that term not disrespectfully, is that elderly people have just seen so much, haven't they? They've, they've seen it come and they've seen it go. In fact, sometimes they'll tell you about that. Hey, look, i got these new jeans. The bottoms flare out. But an old person will say, eh, seen it come, seen it go. They've seen the social fads. They remember when all the young people had their faces in this new media and wouldn't look up and look, give anyone eye contact. Oh, yeah, that was when a newspaper was invented. They remember, they've seen things come and they've seen things go. And when they tell you a story, they lean back and they say, I remember when. And you don't rush when you hear a story told by a senior citizen because they have decades of experience to pack in. And sometimes they'll take little rabbit trails, won't they? They'll be in the middle of one story and they'll say, and by the way, that reminds me of 1972. And you just stop and, and you sit in the moment and you enjoy it and you can't rush it. And that's the feel of reading John's gospel. He doesn't rush anything. He's quite wordy. He's very descriptive. And, and he gives you a big picture perspective and then hones down into a little picture perspective. But let's think about who's writing. Jesus' youngest disciple. And I've put up here on the whiteboard just that he was from a conservative background. He was from a conservative background. Jesus' youngest disciple from a conservative background he grew up in the area of Galilee. Now, you need to know a couple of things about Galileans. Galileans were not like the rest of the nation of Israel in the first century world when Jesus was walking the face of the earth. Galileans were conservative. In fact, they were teased by, by the Judeans. They were teased by the people in Jerusalem, much like maybe people in the bush today would get teased by people in capital cities. Because in Jerusalem, they looked up north to the hills of Galilee and they said, oh, those backwards, you know, they're not up with the times. They don't, they're not really adopting the Romans. Roman and the Greek practices. They're not really adopting the Roman dress style. They're not even being influenced by the Roman languages much. You know, these Galileans, they were conservative. Everybody say the word conservative. Now, when we say the word conservative, we don't just mean they didn't dance in church. 
They were, they were conservative. For, for starters, they resisted any other language but Hebrew and Aramaic. That is when, when, when in Jerusalem, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, so we know the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and then uh, as, as, as time went on, and especially the Greco-Roman Empire influenced the, the, the whole known world at the time, the, the Israelites, the Jewish rabbis, they got together and said, man, none of our young people can read Hebrew anymore. What are we going to do? I know what we'll do. We'll translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek so that everybody can keep reading it. And then we might even be able to send it out to the other nations of the earth as well. And they did that. But the Galileans, you know what the Galileans did? In all of the synagogues around Galilee, they resisted reading the Bible in Greek. They wanted to stick with their Hebrew roots. They could probably read Greek. They could probably interface with the Gentile regions around them and speak Greek, but they wouldn't do it in the synagogue. They were conservative. They didn't really like change. They didn't want modernization. They didn't want the influences of the outside world impacting them. That's the first thing. They spoke Hebrew. They resisted change. They were highly Torah observant. And what that means is they were very committed to the revelation of the Hebrew Bible. They were committed to the law of Moses. They were committed to the writings of the prophets. They were committed to the poetic wisdom books in the book of Psalms. They would sing the book of Psalms. They would pray the book of Psalms. Their lives were marinated in the Hebrew Bible. In fact, their whole educational process was was founded around memorization of the Hebrew Bible. And by the time a boy or girl were 10 or 11 years old, it's highly likely they had memorized their first five books of the Bible. And if they did it well, they went on. And if they didn't do it well, they went back to their family trade. So we know John's a fisherman. He works with his brother and with his father, the sons of Zebedee. And so we know that he obviously didn't carry on to a rabbinical education because he was a fisherman when we meet him in the Gospels, a Galilean fisherman. They were Torah observant. These Galileans, they would regularly travel to the temple. They would bring sacrifices. Often, actually, they wouldn't bring sacrifices. What they do is they would walk the, the three-day journey to Jerusalem with money in their pocket, and they would get to the temple, and the temple would say, well, if you really love God, and if you're really spiritual, what you should do is you should change your coins into the special currency that only the temple has. The temple had its special own type of currency set up by Caiaphas, the high priest, and his family. And what would happen is they established their own bank in the temple and it had its own currency. And if you were really spiritual, you wouldn't give temple offerings in your currency. What you do is you'd go to the the money changers in the temple and you'd exchange your currency for their currency. By the way, they'd take a massive hefty cut of currency exchange. And then you'd get that. Then you'd go to the shop at the temple where they sold sacrifices because they would tell you your sacrifices weren't good enough. So you'd buy, the sacri- you'd buy the sacrificial animal from the temple and then you'd go and have the priest um, sacrifice the animal for you. And there was this whole system. Now, the Galileans were so Torah observant that they believed, okay, God must want us to do this. So they went through that. They walked regularly. And you see even in the Gospels how many times Jesus and the disciples make the trip from Galilee or Nazareth or, or Capernaum up to the temple in Jerusalem. Every year, numerous times of a year, they go on that three-day walk. They went regularly. They'd bring sacrifices. They'd observe all the festivals. You get a picture of just how conservative the Galileans were when Jesus goes to his hometown in Luke chapter 4 and he preaches his first ever sermon. And when he preaches his first ever sermon, what happens is they get a bit upset at what he's talking about and they get upset about something very specific. Jesus says, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. 
And there weren't many righteous people in the nation of Israel in the days of Elijah. So he went to the Gentiles. He went to that Gentile woman or these other Gentiles. And what really upset the people of Nazareth was in Jesus' sermon. They're all speaking well of him at one point. Wow, where did he get these awesome words? Isn't he the carpenter from down the road? Won't we know his parents? This is amazing. They all spoke highly of him. But then Jesus says, yeah, well, you know, there weren't many godly people in Israel. So he went to the Gentiles. And when they hear that, it says they became so furious. This is in Luke chapter 4, verse 28 and 29. Luke tells us they became so furious with Jesus in his hometown. One minute they're speaking highly of him. The next minute they grab him and they drag him to a cliff face where they were going to throw him off. And if you know the geography of Nazareth, there's quite a few options there for where you could be thrown from a cliff. So think about that. Think about you guys. What would I have to do as the preacher this morning for you guys to riot? Drag me somewhere and throw me off a cliff. Now, I know you've thought about it, okay. But there's a vast difference between just your fantasy life and actually leaving your chair en masse, grabbing me by the scruff of the neck and dragging me out to throw me off a cliff. It'd have to be something that upsets you quite a bit, wouldn't it? And it's a bit of an insight for us. It shows you just how conservative the people of Nazareth are. Jesus is breaking the rules. He's talking about Gentiles. Let's kill him. It's a a conservative area. And John is a, a young, impressionable boy that has grown up in this part of the world. Now, of course, they were so conservative. One of, the, one of the things the rabbis had done in the first century world is they'd reduced all of the Torah down to a list of rules and regulations. And actually, this really irritated Jesus. And some of those rules and regulations were exact citations from the law of Moses, and others were derivatives from it, which meant they sort of like, because the law might have been ambiguous or hard to apply, they, they added a couple in there just so that you wouldn't get confused. Okay, So there were 613 rules and obligations you had as a good Jewish boy or girl in the first century world. Six, you had to bear in mind 613 rules. How many people would rather be the people of Israel with the Ten Commandments versus the 613? Or what about Adam and Eve, the One Commandments? Don't touch that tree. Don't eat from that tree. Okay. And they had all sorts of rules. Like, like uh, an example would be they had Sabbath laws. And the Sabbath laws was that thou shalt not work on the Sabbath. You should keep it holy. You should rest. It's a day of worship. Okay. So we, we understand that. But one of those 613 laws was, an example, a man shall not walk with a needle and thread in his pocket on the Sabbath. Very important. How many men today came to church with a, with a needle and thread in your pocket? Just in case you pop a button or something like that. Okay. Now, why can't you walk with a needle and thread in your pocket on the Sabbath? Well, I'll tell you why. Because as you're walking along, if you've got a needle in your pocket, as you're walking along, the motion of the fabric as you walk might cause the needle to go in and out of the fabric. And you know what that is? When a needle goes in and out of a fabric, that's called sewing. And if you accidentally sow on the Sabbath, you've worked and you've broken God's holy law. So no walking with a needle and thread in your pocket on the Sabbath. How about that? One of the 613 laws. There was all sorts of ways they had codified God's generic statements into the Torah, into the law. They were very conservative. And these laws were Sabbath, Sabbath keeping. They're about hand washing. They're about social strata, social stratification. They're about gender relationships. There were sacrifice laws and there were laws around temple money. It's pretty incredible. Now, this creates a bit of a challenge. And the challenge is that John 
as this little boy that's grown up in this environment, was called to follow Jesus. Actually, you can't see it well on the board, but he's called to follow Jesus. And we get the story in Luke 5 and in Mark 1. First of all, Jesus is preaching and uh, he gets in Simon Peter's boat and Simon Peter has to push out a little bit so Jesus can preach to everybody on the shores of the Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. And then what happens is Jesus decides to reward him for letting him use his boat. And he says, hey, chuck your nets out on the other side of the boat. And Peter's like, all right, Lord, well, you know, you're the carpenter, I'm the fisherman, and we kind of already fished all night, and during the daytime in the early mid-morning is not a great time for fishing because the fish aren't feeding then. Um, But anyway, I'll do what you say. And so they throw their nets out, and they caught such a large haul that their boat was nearly swamped. And um, the gospel writers tell us that they had to call all the other boats nearby. Of course, Galilee in the first century where it was a massive fishing uh, village, Capernaum, where this story happens. It's a massive cooperative where all of the people catch the fish together, then they stockpile them, then they sell them to the Roman Empire, and then they pay 125% taxes on their fish. So go work that out. So they have to call all their other boats to help them. And, and, and one of the people driving that boat or one of the people working on one of those boats is a fella called John and his brother James, and they are called to, to come and help, and they do that. They throw all the fish in, so all of them partake of this incredible miracle. And then the next day, Jesus comes to Simon Peter and says, all right, follow me. You'll From now on, I'll make you a fisher of men. And then he walks further down the beach, and he sees James and John, sons of Zebedee there, and he says to them, you guys also follow me, and they begin following Jesus. So it's like they, they can't deny what they saw the day before. They heard him preach. They probably heard of his famous sermon in Nazareth. They heard what he was up to. He's going around casting out demons healing the sick, uh, doing all sorts of amazing things. Then they see this crazy fish miracle and they're fishermen, so they really know fishing well and they can't believe what their eyes show them. Simon Peter, when that miracle happens, he falls down at Jesus' feet and says, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. He realised, Jesus, you're too good for me. And imagine the joy the next day when Jesus comes and says, so you think I'm too good for you, but you're just the type of person whose life I want to transform. So he calls him and says, follow me. And what a great picture of how Jesus calls us as well. And he calls John. And so John becomes a follower of Jesus. Now, this is, this is breeding trouble. This is breeding trouble, okay? Because John is an eyewitness to everything Jesus does. And let's just have a look at a, a couple of things. Okay, He's an eyewitness to Jesus' life. He's an eyewitness to Jesus' death. And he's an eyewitness to Jesus' resurrection. In his own gospel, he tells probably one of the more embarrassing gospel stories, which is when Jesus is arrested, there's a little bit of a scuffle and John decides to get amongst it. And what happens is someone grabs him by the robe. And so he slips out of his robe and runs down the street naked. And you thought your family told embarrassing stories at your 21st. But there's all sorts of interesting things. See, John has to process what he's seen in Jesus. He has to process what he knew about Jesus. I saw him heal. I saw him open blind eyes. I saw him raise Lazarus from death. And then he, he tells you that story in his gospel. And, but, but he's also seeing Jesus do deeply troubling things that are very mysterious because it's kind of like Jesus is nowhere near as conservative as the Galileans that he springs from. He's nowhere near as, as, as um, you know, hung up on the 613 rules as everybody else is. I don't know if Jesus ever carried a needle and thread on the Sabbath, but I know he got in trouble for doing all sorts of stuff in the Sabbath from the Pharisees. And it's like Jesus had this opinion, I can do what I want, guys. And John tells us some things like Jesus was a bit relaxed with the hand-washing laws. And not only was he relaxed with the hand-washing laws, his first miracle, his first sign, which John in his gospel, he'll call all of Jesus' miracles signs. And he'll say, what is a sign? A sign is a pointer. It's a navigation device. It tells you, look at that. 
And Jesus does these amazing signs in the Gospel of John. In fact, John structures his Gospel around seven signs. And while we're on it, John will make a big deal of the number seven in his Gospel because when he's an old man writing his Gospel, he looks back and he's reflecting deeply on Jesus. And there's sevens all the way through his gospel. There's, there's seven signs, there's seven sermons, there's seven discourses, the seven testimonies. Um, we're, we're introduced by name to seven men. We're introduced to seven women. G- John, when he tells us about the disciples, because he's got a hang up on seven, he omits some from the list of the 12 and he just introduces us to the seven. <laughs> There's all sorts of sevens in John's gospel as he structures and introduces us to Jesus in really profound ways. And one of the things he does is he tells us this story in John 2 that shows Jesus doesn't care much about the hand-washing laws. You know the story, there's a wedding, they run out of wine. And when they run out of wine, Jesus' mum gets concerned for the couple because, of course, you know, in the first century world, if you ran out of wine or food at a wedding, the guests have spent money to get there. They give you money for your, um, you know, future. And if you don't put on a good spread, what happens later is they can sue you for the return of the loss of property and profit that they lost during that visit. (laughs) And so if you run out of food, you're going to get sued by the guests. How many people think it's a bit more relaxed these days to throw a wedding? So they ran out of wine and Jesus' mum comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, you've got to do something. She knows there's something going on with Jesus. And, and, and Jesus says, what's it got to do with me? And, and, and she says to the servants, just do what he says. And by the way, we should always hear Mary in the background of our lives too. Whenever we're wrestling with ethical issues or life questions or, or whatever, you should just hear Mary in the background looking at you and going, just do what he says. So he turns around and he sees these stone water jars. Now, the stone water jars are the ceremonial hand-washing jars of the Jews. And because, especially in Galilee, they were conservative, you didn't do anything without following the cleanliness rituals first, washing your feet, washing your hands, washing your head, all this sort of thing. You had to do it all sorts. You did it before you prayed. You did it before you ate. You did it when you came into a house. You did it when you went to the synagogue. All sorts of washing, 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 washing. And Jesus says, look, um, see those hand-washing vats over there? Grab them and fill them with water. And everyone's like, man, this is so weird. Why is Jesus all of a sudden wanting us to wash our hands when his mother's telling him there's a problem with the wine and why would he be hung up on the hand washing? But this is the sign, this is the pointer, this is where Jesus shows you, surprise, there's something pretty amazing happening in my ministry right now. And John's an eyewitness to it. So he's part of the crew looking on, watching what's going on. And what happens? Those servants, they fill up those stone water jars and then they have to scoop some out and take it to the master of the feast. And I don't know who got the job, but they were probably packing it when they did. And the master of the feast sips the water and boom, it had been turned into wine. And there's something deep going on behind the text, which comes from Isaiah chapter 25, where where Isaiah prophesied that in the day that the Messiah comes, new wine will flow from the hill country. And Jesus fulfills it at this little wedding in Galilee. And John says, that was his first sign. That's the first thing that pointed to him. He's the Messiah. He's the son of God. But it also shows Jesus isn't very hung up on hand washing. He wants to take the dead hand washing of religion and turn it into the new wine of the kingdom of God. That's a pretty cool picture, isn't it? So he's a bit hung up on that. Jesus is not too hung up on the social laws. The Jews had massive social laws, massive social laws. They had rules that govern the relationships between men and women, as in who you're allowed to talk to. And pretty much if you weren't related to a woman, you would never talk to her in public. She should never talk to you. And they'd turn a blind eye to a couple of situations. Like if she's a prostitute, they'd turn a blind eye to it because, hey, they might want to capitalise on her services one day. There's a lot of hypocrisy like that. And Jesus was always talking to the Jews about their hypocrisy. You whitewash tombs, you paint the outside, you pretend you're all good, but on the inside, there's a whole bunch of darkness. 
Now, Jesus sort of um, didn't really care a lot about the, the social laws. He let women follow him. He was friends with Mary and Martha. He let this woman um, wash his feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. Everyone else thought that was weird, but Jesus understood that was a deep recognition of who he truly was. He goes to dinner at Lazarus's house and Mary and Martha are there and Martha's in the kitchen working and she's trying to get help from her sister Mary, but Mary's there sitting at the feet of Jesus with all the rest of the disciples, sitting at the feet of Jesus, the position that only men took in a rabbinical school. And Martha comes out and says, Jesus, that's not fair. Tell my sister to get back in me. He says, actually, she's made a pretty good choice here. Well, there's no other first century rabbi that's ever had a woman come and sit at his feet in a class of men and said, she's made a good choice. Most of the time she'd be kicked out. But Jesus didn't really go for these rules that divided men and women and, and, and stratified society. Jesus didn't really respect those laws, nor was he bound by them. He turned them upside down on his head. First of all, because they were not from God's word. They were not from the Torah. They were derivative rules that had evolved over time. And Jesus didn't respect those rules or follow them. He felt free to set them aside. You see this in, in uh, John's story in John chapter 4 where Jesus goes to a village in Samaria and he sits on a well and this woman comes and talks to him and Jesus has a conversation with her offering her salvation like it's no big deal. But then you see what a big deal it is because when the Galilean disciples all come, they're very conservative of course, and it says, and they were amazed that Jesus was there talking to her, a woman. And even the woman is amazed. She says, you a man, talk to me, a woman. You a Jewish man, talk to me, a woman. She was even amazed. Jesus, Jesus didn't really respect those man-made ways of dividing up the human race. <laughs> there, there were laws about what made you clean and what made you unclean. Like for argument's sake, if, if a woman had an issue of blood, she was not allowed to, to be in the assembly or be near people or be out in public. And then when that woman touches Jesus, Jesus doesn't remotely have a problem with it. And says, he says, instead, he says, look at that, her faith made her well. What a daughter of Abraham. He uses her as a positive example. That's odd. When someone's dead, Jesus doesn't resist the cleanliness. Jesus doesn't fear the cleanliness laws, like not touching a dead body because it'll make you unclean. Instead, Jesus goes ahead and touches the dead body and it doesn't make him unclean. It makes them alive. He's funny like that, Jesus. He just seems that he's here making his own program, making his own agenda come to pass in the world. There were rules about what made you righteous and what made you sinners. And Jesus sets them aside because he just offers people forgiveness on the spot. You know, the, the rules were, if you want forgiveness, you go to the temple, you pay your money, you exchange the currency, you buy the sacrifice, you take it to the priest, the priest sacrifices it, then you get forgiven. That's how you get forgiveness in the first century world. It's in the Torah. And Jesus says, well, I'm here to set that aside because what happens is wherever I am, that's now sacred space. And so if I choose to forgive you, that substitutes for a visit to the temple. You see it in John chapter 5. Jesus goes to the pool and, and there's a man crippled beside the pool waiting to go in. And Jesus says, do you want to get well? And he says, I can't. There's no one to throw me into the water. And Jesus says, get up on your feet and heals him on the spot. And that's radical, that story. It's radical. And it's radical because in the first century world, the Romans had taken that place, taken that poolside, and they had made it into a temple for one of their pagan gods. The god was called Asclepius. And Asclepius was the Roman healing god, the god that, that, that was represented by healing pools of water. And so, of course, this good little Jewish boy sitting beside the pool, he's actually there caught in the act in the midst of idolatry. And Jesus walks up to someone in the midst of their idolatrous act and says, do you want to get well? Because I can heal you. It's like he makes idolatry defunct on the one hand. But think about how radical it is because Jesus himself doesn't recognise there's no place Jesus can't go. He's not hung up on what everyone else is hung up on, that you could be in the heart of darkness and Jesus will have no problem about walking right in there and healing you right where you are. 
I mean, come on, guys, that's pretty crazy. It's like Jesus is no respecter of these 613 laws. There was a strict hierarchy, a strict hierarchy. And the hierarchy touched on all sorts of things. It touched on things like, you know, if you're wealthy, that's because God's blessing is on you. You must have been righteous and had enough faith. By the way, there's a horrible doctrine about that floating around planet Earth. It's just trash. You should never worry about it. If you're wealthy, it's because God likes you and God's favour is upon you. And if you're not wealthy, you haven't had faith and you're not righteous and God's favour is not upon you. So there's this huge divide between the rich and the poor and the rich were considered righteous and the poor were considered sinful. And Jesus comes along and says, woe to you rich. Oh, but blessed are you poor. What? He's turning everything else upside down. And John has to process all this as this young follower of Jesus growing up in a very conservative world as an eyewitness walking with Jesus. And you just got to ask yourself, how many times the disciples were like, oh, Jesus, I don't know if you should be doing that. You know, and actually you do see because they feel free to rebuke him from time to time in the, in the Gospels. Peter's famous story didn't go too well for him. Jesus sets aside the hierarchy. And John tells you this crazy story about that because in John chapter 3, he tells you that the, the man with the most honoured rabbinical position in Israel at the time, every year, Israel nominated one person to fulfil a role called the teacher of Israel. And that year, when Jesus has this conversation, the one in the position of honour, his name was Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. And he was the one, the teacher in Israel. That means that one year, they're the one in charge of preserving the doctrinal purity of the whole nation. They can settle all disputes. They can settle all doctrinal issues. They're the one in charge. And every year, one of the great rabbis would be nominated to sit in that auspicious office, a rotating office. So, you know, they didn't just abuse their power too much. And this guy is the most powerful teacher in Israel. And he comes to Jesus and look, he's actually a bit embarrassed because he knows Jesus is like all this stuff we're talking about. And so he doesn't openly come to Jesus. It's nighttime and he sneaks in the dark so no one recognizes him. And he has a conversation with Jesus saying, Jesus, I want to know more about this. And he quizzes Jesus. And, and, and in the story, John tells you this story in John chapter three. And you sort of get the impression like he's got all this power. He's got this position, but he's really curious about Jesus. And there's this sense of wholesomeness in the way he asks Jesus questions. And Jesus begins to talk to him and Jesus says, basically, you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born from above. You have to have a work of the Holy Spirit come upon your life and transform you and birth you into God's kingdom. And Nicodemus doesn't understand it at all because, of course, there's a wordplay when, when he says you have to be born from above. The, the word above in the Greek language is, uh, both means above or it means again. And so that's where we get the phrase, you must be born again. It is, it's the translation of the wordplay, born in, being born again. And Nicodemus is like, but how can you go back into your mum's womb a second time? That doesn't make sense. He doesn't understand. Jesus isn't saying being born again. He's saying be born from above. Have a spiritual rebirth. Let the Holy Spirit come and do a work of transformation in you. And take you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Now think about this. Jesus is talking to one of the most important VIPs in the first century world. He is no respecter of person. He has a conversation with him. Let God's spirit come and transform your life. The very next narrative, Jesus is in uh, Samaria talking to this woman at the well. And he says to her, if you knew who it was talking to you, you would ask me and I would give you rivers of living water. I would give you the water of life. And then he has a conversation with her about the eternal life of God as well. And John has parked those narratives side by side as a comparison. Uh, an important man, an unimportant woman, a highly educated man, a woman from a completely different religious sect. 
And it just shows you Jesus takes these social strata, these gender divide, this identity divide, and he turns it upside down. He says, I don't respect any of this. I treat every single person the same. I give everyone the opportunity to come into the kingdom of God. Unless you understand the first century world, you could never imagine just how shocking these behaviours are. And that's probably why John has included them in his gospel, because it's like, man, you've really got to process what is going on with Jesus. There's temple laws. You have to go to the temple at the right time. You have to make sacrifices. You have to follow the money rules. And there's festivals all year, and you've got to observe these festivals and holy days. And the temple is just of paramount importance, especially to the Galileans who would make a three-day trek on foot to go there and save up money and spend it all to, 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 to do it. And lo and behold, after, after John tells you the story about Jesus with, with the new wine, the next thing he does is he tells you the story about Jesus going to the temple and clearing that place out. Jesus doesn't follow those temple rules. He turns around and, and he makes a, a whip out of cords and he drives out the cattle. He drives out the overpriced inflated sacrifices. He flings over the tables of the money changers, probably something everybody's wanted to do, but they feared the temple power so much they would never do that. And Jesus comes on and says, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. Oh, and the Galileans liked that. When he went back to that area, they'd all heard about it. It says they all spoke highly of him because they'd seen and heard what he did in the temple. <laughs> There's something deeper going on in the temple narrative, you know, like when God visits and when God turns up to his own place. All this would have been so confusing for the apostles, like, man, who are we dealing with? You can't deny he has divine power, but on the other hand, he's very loose with these 613 laws. It's like he doesn't respect them at all. What is going on? And then in John's gospel, Jesus turns up to all of these festivals. And every time he turns up to a festival, he makes it about him. He, he, he does crazy stuff. Like, and the classic one is when he goes to the, to, to this, the festival of booths in, um, in John chapter 7. And at the crucial, it says on the, on the last and the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up in the midst at the very climax of the feast and said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink and from his belly will flow rivers of living water. You know, in that festival, right at that apex of the festival, the, the priest would take um, a, a, a jug of water and the water had been sourced from, from a, a, a stream, a living stream. And he would, he would pour out the water before the people. And all of the people would take palm branches and they would shout and praises to God as the water was being poured and they would bang their palm branches on the ground and wave them in the air. And you knew when you could stop doing that because all the leaves had fallen off your palm branches. And it was like this climactic part on the last day of the festival. And they would, all, they would all shout Hosanna. And they would all sing, God, save us. And they would all shout praises to God. And there would be this whole throng of praise and worship until all the palm leaves were bare. And then everybody would just stop in silence. And in that silent moment, the priest would pour out the living water on the altar. So imagine all that's happened and as the priest is pouring out the living water, Jesus can't help himself. The gospel is alive in him and he gets up on that moment in that feast and he gets up and says, if you're thirsty, come to me. I'll give you living water. It won't flow out of that jug. It'll flow from within you. I mean, that's a pretty amazing thing. He turns all the festivals upside down because he relates them all back to himself. And it's like all the way through his ministry, and John, by the way, John has seven festivals in his gospel, and Jesus goes to those seven festivals, and at every festival he disrupts it and causes conflict with the religious on the one hand, but on the other hand, a deep teaching truth emerges. It's almost like Jesus thinks these rules all bow the knee to him. 
These festivals all bow the knee to him. The temple bows the knee to him. In fact, when they attack him for what he does in the temple, who gave you the right to do this? He said, destroy this in three days, I'll rebuild it. And then John says, and by the way, the temple he was talking about was his body. In other words, Jesus saying, oh, you don't need this temple anymore. I am the new temple. And that'll be a powerful thought for the Apostle Paul later because we as the body of Christ, what does he say about us? Now you are the temple. Sabbath, holy days, festivals, it's incredible. John is an eyewitness. He can't deny the things he's seeing, but there's no denying, I don't know if you should be doing that, Jesus. And then he watches Jesus die. Having been with Jesus all through the times he predicted his death and said it would be his life given as a ransom for many. And then he runs down the street naked. Then he finds out about the resurrected Jesus at the empty tomb. Then he is is with Jesus and the disciples when Jesus ascends to heaven. Then he's with the 120 believers on the day of Pentecost. And then he's sent out to preach in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to all of the nations of the earth. And he does. So he goes around preaching and he's swept up in this Jesus movement as an eyewitness. He knows who Jesus is. He knows everything that's going on. Then he gets arrested by the Emperor Nero and he's exiled to the island of Patmos. Now, in the Old Testament world, when you're imprisoned, what happens is they keep you in jail while they decide what the best way to kill you is. There are no punitive sentences here. It's like, well, you get seven years in jail, then we'll let you out. You can go back about your life. In the first century world, jail was like the waiting room for death. So they're obviously trying to work out how, what is the best way to kill this guy? And if you read the church history, there were some really incredible attempts made on his life that he seemed to survive. Teflon John. But he's on Patmos, right? And he's, and he's praying. And when he's on the island of Patmos, he has these incredible visions of Jesus. And you have to understand something about John is before he writes his gospel, he writes to you the book of his visions of Jesus. So John makes an assumption whenever you open the gospel of John, he makes an assumption that you've read the prequel. And the prequel is not the Old Testament. The prequel is the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is written around 70 AD. The Gospel of John is written in the late 90s AD, maybe 96 or 98 AD. So, So he writes his Gospel 20 years after he has these visions on the island of Patmos. And in these visions, which he records for us in the book of Revelation, there is an epic surprise. And that epic surprise is supposed to be something that fills your soul and fills your heart and fills your mind before you turn to the Gospel of John. Shall we read that epic surprise together this morning? Are you okay? You're just sort of staring at me like a cow at a new gate. I know, I've been told my voice is the best cure for insomnia. Many people have said what a blessing it was to actually come and sleep at church today for once. Because you're preaching. There's an epic surprise in, 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 in the book of Revelation. And to understand it, you need to be what John was, a scholar of the Hebrew Bible, a student of the Hebrew Bible, someone who understood the word. Okay? If you go to Daniel chapter 7, I think we'll have the scripture to put up on the screen. If you go to Jan- Daniel chapter 7, and we'll read from, let's see, verse 9. Daniel has a vision of God. And if you're an astute reader of this vision, you'll collect its information because when you turn to the book of Revelation later, you'll see this vision repeated in really incredible ways. He has a vision of God. And in the vision of God, listen to what Daniel says. Okay, Daniel chapter 7, we're going to pick it up from verse 9. It says, And thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. 
And his clothing was as white as snow. And the hair of his head was like white of all. Who is it? It's the Ancient of Days, a Jewish way of talking about God without blaspheming his name. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him, and thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times, 10,000 stood before him, and this court was seated, and the books were opened. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? And then if you go down, we'll drop down to verse 13. Just see the next bit of Daniel's vision. Listen to this. And in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Everybody say son of man. One like a son of man. In my vision, there was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days and he was led into his presence. Okay, so one like a son of man coming. Okay, that's, that's interesting. There's this other figure coming. The ancient of days, God is on the throne and now this other person is ushered in. And look what happens. And then what happens to this person? He was led into his presence and he was given authority and glory and sovereign power and all nations and people of every language worshipped him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion. That will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Okay, so there's, a, there's confusion. And this confusion is well written of in the first century. By the time Jesus comes along, the rabbis have had hundreds of years after Daniel wrote this vision down to debate what the heck is going on in Daniel chapter 7. In fact, they said the only way to understand this is that there's two Yahweh figures in the Bible. There's two God-like figures in the Bible because one's on the throne and only Yahweh receives worship. But then how come one like the Son of Man comes to the throne and he's brought in and then he's given the throne, he's given dominion, he's made in charge, he's given the kingdom. That is very confusing. Very confusing. Sidebar. It's so odd when Jesus comes along and says, oh, by the way, the time is now. The kingdom is here. It's very confusing if you understand that Jesus' favourite way of self-describing is the Son of Man. And John walks and he hears Jesus say all these things and he probably stores them up in his heart. But when he's older and he's in exile in the book of Revelation, he has this vision. And this vision comes from Revelation chapter 1. And we're going to pick it up from, let's see, verse 12. From verse 12 of Revelation chapter 1. We might have it to put up on the screen. And John tells us about this vision that he's transported into. And look at what he says. He says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. Listen to this. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. Have you heard that before? Now, John has done a very weird thing. John has taken the image from Daniel chapter 7 because the Ancient of Days was on the throne and his hair was white like wool. And then the Son of Man is ushered in and he is given the kingdom. And then John says, I turned around and I see the one whose hair is white like wool, but he just happens to be the one that's the Son of Man. I reckon all of John's life, everything Jesus did was mysterious and amazing and he couldn't but follow Jesus. 
But it wasn't until he was exiled to the island of Patmos that he probably had the full cognitive revelation. The Jesus that he followed, the Jesus that he worshipped, Jesus a great teacher, a great prophet, even the the object of his worship. But it was probably at this moment that he realised, which is why he wrote the letters to the churches, you've got to understand what I've seen, gang. He's not just someone who reveals God to us. He is God himself. Yeah, that's an earth-shattering revelation if you sat in John's shoes. In his right hand, his, his feet were like bronze glowing the furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. And his face was shining like the sun in all of its brilliance. So think about this. Think about this. He's conservative, John, from this conservative background... He knows the 613 laws. Later in life, he's arrested and he's exiled to the island of Patmos. He has these visions and his visions he writes down in the book of Revelation containing, opening with the epic surprise, the one we read about in Daniel chapter 7 is Jesus himself. Then he writes the whole book of Revelation. And actually, the book of Revelation quotes the Old Testament more than any other book, okay? So most of the weird stuff that you read in there, you're like, wow, that's pretty crazy. Most of it is a quotation or an illusion or a redescription of something that comes from sections of the Hebrew Bible. And so all of these stupid things about like prophecynewswatch.com, it's all happening in America today. It's just all bogus because it doesn't understand that what John is doing really, he tells you in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ, an apocalypse. This is an unveiling of the curtains. That's what the word apocalypse means. That's what revelation means in Revelation chapter 1, a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the curtains revealed on who Jesus really is. That's what's the whole point about the book of Revelation. It's a revelation of Jesus. It's not a revelation of Time Magazine's prediction of future events or the foolish websites and crazy American preaching that we hear. After John writes the book of Revelation, he has time. He has time to sit and think. And as he sits and thinks, he, he, he sits and thinks about the Old Testament quite a lot. And as he sits and thinks about the Old Testament... He has time to reflect on this passage from Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 through to 15. But remember, he is soaked in the, whole, in the Old Testament. He is soaked in the Hebrew Bible. So he's reflecting, and in his reflection, he turns to Genesis chapter 15. The famous Story. Jesus will allude to it later on. Genesis chapter 15. The story where we get great detail about God's first covenant with Abraham. I wonder if you've ever read it before. We're going to put it up on the screen for you. Genesis 15 verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. We just have to pause there because there's something weird going on, guys. Words come to you how? Reading or, let's say you can't read, hearing. Words come to you in an auditory or visual fashion if writing is involved, okay? And you think that most for the most part because you've heard the phrase in the Old Testament many times, the word of the Lord came. 
It is how Isaiah's prophecy ministry is introduced. Ezekiel, Hosea, uh, Jeremiah, Malachi, Zechariah, could go on. Samuel, Eli, okay. Hey, the word of the Lord, you've heard that phrase so many times. And probably when you read this phrase, the word of the Lord came to Abram, you're probably thinking a message from God formulated in his mind. Or you're probably thinking, I don't know, Abram had a scroll that he read because it comes in an auditory fashion or it comes in a visual fashion. Okay? But that's not what Genesis says. Genesis says, the, the Dabar Elohim, the, 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 the word of the Lord came to him in a vision. And all the way through the Hebrew Bible, the word of the Lord, it's a, it's a phrase, the word of the Lord is not a message that formulates itself into your ears or in your mind. You even hear modern people say this, you know, if they're talking about their own prophecies or God speaking, you know, the word of the Lord came to me and it said this, and it said this. Okay, it's like, I got this message, this message formulated itself in my mind. I heard this message in my heart. That's not what happens in the Hebrew Bible. And probably our eyes haven't been opened to this before. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. How do you see a word? Different question. If you live in the ancient world where most people cannot read and write, how do you see a word? Watch what happens to Abram. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, question. The word of the Lord, the Dabar Alahim in Hebrew, the word of the Lord, who will be a figure introduced many times in the Hebrew Bible, comes to Abram and Abram recognises it. Not, it's not a message formulating itself in my mind. It's not an idea. It's not a, a thought being revealed or something I hear. I'm seeing God. Well, what happens when you see God? Well, in the Old Testament, God always has to tell you, don't worry, don't be scared. And Abram recognises him, sovereign Lord. How does Abram know that the word of the Lord that comes to him in a vision, that he's actually having an encounter with God? This is not an idea coming to Abraham. This is not a, a, a prophecy coming to Abraham. This is not Abraham being moved by a word in his mind. This is Abraham encountering a figure. And the author of Genesis, Moses, exclaims that this figure is a, by a, a sacred title all the way through the rest of Scripture, the word of the Lord. And look what happens. Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham has said, you have given me no children. No servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, see, this is not Abraham getting a message. This is Abraham encountering a person. And the person is mysterious. The person will be mysterious all the way through the Hebrew Bible, known by, under various guises. Like for Daniel, he's called the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days. And for the author to Genesis, Abraham knew him as the Dabar Elohim. The word of the Lord has come to me. God is appearing to me in this figure called the Word, who physically manifests himself in a way that can be spoken with and talked to and seen. God can't be seen. When, when this vision appears, is God no longer in heaven? No, no, from heaven, the word of the Lord has come to Abraham. If Abraham is to know God, God comes and appears to him in the form of this person called the word of the Lord. 
He appears. And, and Abraham can take him somewhere. He can take him outside. Remember, John is an old man reflecting on the visions he's seen and he's reading stories like this. Let's have a look at what happens in 1 Samuel. One Samuel, go to chapter three. If you wonder how many people haven't read Samuel in a while and you're wondering where it is, turn right at Joshua. The story of the calling of the famous prophet Samuel. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. Listen to this. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. In those days, not many people were encountering the figure that Abraham encountered. It wasn't happening. And one night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord. People would often sleep in the temple when they were priests. And the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel answered, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. So this is an auditory experience. This is a person talking to me, not a message formulating itself in my spirit. Here I am. <laughs> and young Samuel, he's so inexperienced, he doesn't know what's going on. The, the, the narrator knows the Lord is talking to him, but he's never encountered the Lord before. He just hears someone in the temple calling him. So he runs to Samuel and says, yeah, what's up? Here I am. You called me. But Eli said, sorry, he runs to Eli. Eli said, um, I didn't call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. And again, the Lord called Samuel. So remember how the story's been introduced? In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. The visions weren't happening. Now, the word of the Lord is appearing in the temple. He's showing up in the temple. Here I am a second time. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, you called me. My son, Eli said, read the frustration. I didn't call. Go back and lie down. And now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Now, there's something strange going on in this passage. He didn't know the Lord because the way God shows himself to God's people hasn't been revealed to him. He hasn't had, it was rare in those days for what happened to Abraham. The word of the Lord comes in, in a vision. He didn't know. Verse 8, a third time the Lord called Samuel and Samuel got up and went to Eli and he said, here I am, you called me. Then Eli realised that the Lord was calling the boy, okay? The word of the Lord was rare. The Lord was calling. He didn't know it was the Lord because he hadn't seen the vision of the word of the Lord yet. But Eli knows that must be the Lord. <laughs> Who's confused? And Eli realised that the Lord was calling the boy, so Eli said, Go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood there. God comes and stands at the foot of his bed. How about that? Calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel. Okay, he, he, he explains. The Lord appears to Samuel in his room and he explains something. Let's have a look down at the end of chapter 3. Verse 19. Verse 19. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognised that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. 
The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. The word of the Lord appears to Abraham, appears to Samuel, appears in 1 Samuel 15, appears in 1 Kings 6, 11, appears in Isaiah 38, verse 4 and 2, verse 3, Micah 4, verse 2, Ezekiel 6, verse 1, Zechariah 1, 1 and Malachi 1, 1. When God comes and reveals his face, he comes as his word. John has years and years and years to reflect after his occurrence on Patmos, after he understands who the Ancient of Days really is. So he opens his gospel in his old age with this famous writing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And there was a man sent from God whose name was John and he came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not that light. He came only as a witness to the light. And the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. The world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the invisible God, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the word of the Lord came to Abraham. The word of the Lord was there when the world was created. The word of the Lord came to Samuel and Eli. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And then the word of the Lord came in human flesh, teaching and preaching and setting aside laws and bringing new wine in water jars and upturning social laws and, 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 and overturning temple laws and fulfilling festivals, the word of the Lord. And John in his old age sits back and says, <laughs> I finally pieced it all together after decades. So he writes his gospel. I have written, he says in, in John chapter 20, verse 31, I've written that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that you would believe he is the Messiah, and that by believing you would have Zoe, you would have eternal life in his name. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes all over this room today, friends.
In the beginning was the Word. Abraham knew him. That's why Jesus could say in John chapter 8, before Abraham was born, I am. He came to Abraham, he came to Samuel, he came to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, Hosea, Zechariah, came to the people of Israel, came to the people of Israel in the flesh, came to the 12 disciples called John and James, sons of Zebedee, come follow me. And in this room today, the Word is still amongst us. He's still amongst us. He's still here by the power of His Holy Spirit, the one who rules and reigns over God's kingdom. He rules and reigns over the universe. He is the resurrected one. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is the resurrection and the life. And this morning, friends, we're reminded in God's Word just of who it is we've been worshipping, who it is we've been, we've been worshipping and praying and sitting at the feet of the very Ancient of Days Himself, Yahweh made flesh, God's Son, our Saviour. His name is Jesus. And as He's done all throughout human history, come and ask people, come and follow me. With Abram, He established a covenant. Through the prophets, he established a covenant with Israel, calling them to follow him every time his word appeared. And today, we're invited to turn our hearts to him in a fresh way, to turn our minds to him in a fresh way. No matter what we've been up to this week, no matter what we've been thinking about, no matter what we've been faced with today, the word of God is in our midst. Not the letters of a book, the graphe, but the very resurrected Jesus, the Logos, the Logos of God. Lord Jesus, today we turn our hearts and we turn our minds to you. Lord, stir our hearts, stir our faith, God. Help us see you when we open your word. Help us know you when we open your word, but not just reading religion, not just reading laws, but actually interfacing with the Ancient of Days himself, the one whose eyes are like fire, whose hair is white like wool and who is glowing, who is glorious. That's the one we know in the face of Jesus Christ. I pray for you, friend. I pray whatever you're faced with today, that they, those things that they wouldn't be the thing that steals your focus, but instead in your worship, in your faith, in your believing, in your walking, in your praying, that you would have eyes to lift them up and to see where does your help come from? Your help comes from the Lord. I pray you'd have a heart of faith that would reach out to Jesus at every moment and walk with Him. A heart of faith that says, Jesus, you can walk on the waters of my storms. You can calm the seas that I'm sailing over. You can open my eyes. You can raise me from death. Jesus, I turn my heart, I turn my mind, I turn my life over to you. I pray, speak to me, show me your face, show me your, let me walk with you. I pray for you, friend. Pray God's Spirit would hover over your life. Pray you would focus the center of your heart, your loving and your longing and your yearning on Jesus Christ, God's eternal word. And then in Him, you would have life and have it to the full.